0: Um, I'm going to do some more storytelling today, (laughs) Um, but before before that, um, I'd just like to uh, reflect a little bit more on what we did yesterday, and um, try to get a clearer sense perhaps of Of where this process of uh, the four truths, particularly that moment we call uh, stream entry, you know, where does that stand in relationship to where we are now? So, as I understand this uh, process of the four truths, which really is a process of first. Um, embracing dukkha, fully knowing, you know, honestly and quite radically the condition and the situation as a human being one finds oneself in without any kind of consolations, without any um, beliefs or theories that somehow uh, allow the idea that there might be something more transcendent, better, eternal, beyond, but recognizing that this is where we start and this is, in a sense, what concerns us most immediately, most directly. And the Buddha's teaching is very much about going into this experience, the one we're having right now, and starting from there, rather than starting in faith or belief in, in some um, some more ultimate reality. And I think in many regards, particularly the early teachings of the Buddha, um, somehow are difficult to, um, to place alongside much of what is conventionally considered to be religious belief or religious practice. So this process starts with with fully knowing dukkha. As we said yesterday, in other words, through 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 sensitizing and, and integrating one's life with the reality of of suffering and impermanence and contingency and change. And that affords us a perspective on things, another way of of being in the world that has as its effect a falling away of those habits, of those patterns of thinking, of those reactions to life that are in fact premised upon the idea that somewhere deep in here is a fixed ego of some kind, me, that somehow apart from all this... And that somehow deserves more than just the daily endless routine and change of events. And as, this, uh, as these habits begin to fall away, perhaps momentarily, perhaps not for very long, but nonetheless you begin to sense a kind of qualitative shift in, in your primary relationship to your life. And that leads to moments in which you you realize for yourself that you can live in this world without being the puppet of your conditioning, of your habits, of your desires, of your fears. You can respond from somewhere that is not conditioned by those forces. And that is the moment of uh, seeing nibbana, seeing experiencing that stopping for yourself. And again, that may not last very long. But what it does is that it opens up another way of being in this world, which the Buddha describes as the Eightfold Path, the way we see things, think, speak, act, work, and so on, which again provides a foundation for mindfulness and, and focus. And so the whole process then, as it were, begins to um, be freed up. And it's not, I think, surprising that the Buddha calls this experience one of entering a stream, uh, the flow of life itself, from which so many of our habits and attachments are kind of blocking us from. Uh, the, 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 The attachment and egoism and greed and... Hatred and so on and so forth. Although they may make, may, they may give us the impression of, of being alive. In fact, are a kind of deadening force, a kind of inner death, Mara, as it's called in Buddhism. And so, this uh, experience of entering the stream is also about engaging with life totally, without hesitation. Now. In much um, literature about Buddhism, about, in much traditional accounts of stream entry, this experience is often raised up to quite a high degree of, um, of attainment, that one perhaps has to meditate and do all kinds of things for an awful long time before you get a glimpse of this, uh, of this stream entry. And I think it's been put very much up on a pedestal, in fact, and put, to some extent, sort of out of the reach of the ordinary lay person. But the Buddha makes it very clear that when uh, he's asked about whether he has any lay followers, he says, yes, I've not got just a few, but I've got many, 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 all of whom are living in the world, pursuing their, their well-being, and yet have become... As he says, independent in their views of my teaching, in other words they've they 've seen this for themselves. it's not therefore an exclusive preserve of the monks and the nuns they're they're the kind of professional body and as is often the case with religious traditions the there grows up over the centuries an increasingly wide gap between the experiences of the ordinary man or woman on the street and the spiritual ideals presented in the teachings themselves. I mean, this was pointed out very much by Ludwig Feuerbach uh, in the 19th century with his book uh, uh, Das Wesen des Christentums, the, The Essence of Christianity, which was then taken up by Marx and Engels as the basis for their theory of religion as a form of alienation, that um, distances the person from their highest values, which are appropriated by churches and religions and priests, and thereby used as a system of, um, uh, of power. But that's another story. But I think that is equally true of Buddhism, that over time, uh, the, the lamas or the monks or the roshis or the ajans, these are the great spiritual luminaries and we are kind of in the mire of sangsara, just sort of muddling along and doing our best. I think it's always difficult to know exactly where we stand in relation to these sorts of insights or enlightenments. But I do feel it's generally the case that we tend to raise them to impossible heights and thereby somehow alienate ourselves from the possibility, the real possibility, of such a transformation within ourselves. There's um, a dialogue towards the end of the Buddha's life with his cousin Mahanama, who we're going to hear more about later. And Mahanama Ask the Buddha, well, what is, what, what, what does it mean to enter this stream? And the Buddha simply says, to enter the stream means, or the person who has entered the stream is one who has, who has taken refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. He doesn't sort of speak of some high spiritual state. He says, if you have turned your life around consciously, and decided to focus on the realization of Awakening, or the Buddha, the Dhamma, which is the practice and the teaching, and you are committed to a community of like-minded people in that endeavor, then you have entered the stream. So in other words, it's in some respects, entering the stream means to somehow, as we'd say in popular jargon today, that you've gone on message. You've somehow got it. You kind of have clicked to what the Buddha's on about, In some ways I think it's that, and particularly if that has had a kind of transformative effect in your whole frame of values and purposes and goals, when that really becomes a living thing for you, in a sense you have entered into that flow of ideas, of practices, of insights, without necessarily having had shattering mystical experiences. The Buddha speaks of three things that fall away when this uh, moment or this, this, this process of stream entry occurs. The first is that you have, you, you, it, it's a, a point at which you really see through quite clearly the fiction of egoism. That um, you are, as it were, some sort of detached monad, separate entity or thing that's disconnected from the body, the mind, and the world, that exists in some sort of refined, ethereal realm. When you realize that that is, in some sense, is just not really a a coherent idea, that your awareness of your body, of your mind, of your feelings, of your emotions, all point far more towards your existence being one of fluidity and flux, and evolution and growth and change. And you loosen at that point your hold or your grip on this rather stubborn sense of being me that won't budge. The second thing that falls away is that you, you realise that um, this path you're embarked upon will in no way be facilitated by any kind of ritualistic activity. Rites and rituals, which again is quite, at the Buddha's time, was very characteristic of what the priestly caste were doing. It was all about the sacrificial fires, saying mantras, hymns, placating gods, inviting blessings. And the Buddha's basically saying that all of that is actually uh, got nothing to do, it's irrelevant to the process that he's concerned with, the process of opening up this path, uh, treading this path, um, deepening your understanding, being more attentive. It's got nothing to do with the ritualism of religion at all. And the third thing that falls away is doubt. Doubt in the sense that at this point you kind of know intuitively for yourself that this is a legitimate and a valid and a meaningful way to lead your life, you don't have to believe that simply on the authority of anybody else. You know it for yourself in some way, it's somehow gotten into your bones. And then, as I said before, the other um, uh, thing that he describes is this experience of autonomy You're, you become independent of the views of others. In other words, you become in a way your own teacher, your own guide. That doesn't mean that you you don't study or you don't discuss things or you don't have a teacher. But it means that your your primary authority is very much that of your of your own being. We'll come back to this, because this also clearly points to um, a process of individuation of some kind. So Let's now go back to the story. This is what the Buddha taught during the first months of his um, period as a teacher. Um, it's from the texts. it's quite clear that he spent the rains, that would have been the rains um, during the summer period after his awakening. The awakening is normally thought to have occurred sometime in about the month of May, the full moon of May or the fourth lunar month. He spends the rains in Benares, or Isipatana, Sanath, where he teaches his five friends, and then inevitably people get to hear about what's going on in the park. And so so a group of Brahmins called Yasa and his friends, they show up, they get kind of interested. And then by the end of the three months, there's a group of about 50 of them, and when the rains have stopped, then, of course, the Buddha has to decide, well, you know, now now what? What next? Now, you would think if you track his journey on a map, he starts at Sakya near the Himalayas. He comes southeast to Rajgir, crosses the Ganges, goes down to Rajgir, Rajagaha. Then he goes further south to Uruvela, this very remote wilderness kind of area, I think, at the time. He has this experience, this awakening, and then he goes back to Varanasi, back to the Ganges, heading, in effect, in a line towards his own country. In crossing the river, he is, in fact, back in Korsala, where he grew up. So you might expect that after the teaching, after the monsoon is over, then he will head back to, Sh- to Shravasti, the capital of Kosala, or at least to his own hometown, a couple of us do. But he doesn't. Instead, he goes back across the Ganges and returns to Uruvela, to Bodhgaya, where he had his awakening. And he spends a number of uh, weeks probably there, Um, converting a bunch of what are called matted hair fire (laughs) worshippers a bunch of people with dreads basically (laughs) who were uh, worshipping fire Um, and he does all sorts of miracles and things and he converts the the, the dreadlocked fire worshippers and they presumably shade off there matted hair and then there's now about well we don't know the texts say 1250 but all of the numbers in Pali are highly arbitrary they don't designate or very rarely do they designate actual mathematical head counts they really are just you know various ways of saying a few many a lot really a lot so this group of people then leave Uruvela and they head back to Rajgaha, Rajgir, which is about would have taken them about a week or so to get there. Now Rajgir, we haven't really mentioned this place much and I'm not going to dwell on it, was the capital of Magadha, capital of the large um, kingdom to the south of the Ganges, the, the rival of Korsala on the other side of the river. These were the two great powers of India of that day but we do have to remember that they were relatively small fry compared to the Persian Empire to the west but in any case the Buddha goes to Rajagaha and he settles in a park there called the Lativan and then the king a man called Bimbisara very powerful man hears that this uh, person is teaching remembers him, in fact, from a previous encounter, goes to hear him, hears the Dhamma, and becomes a stream entrant. Becomes, as the text says, independent of the opinions of others. He enters the stream. Not only him, but all of his entourage as well, apparently. In gratitude for this, Bimbisara offers Siddhartha Gautama a park called the Veluvan, the bamboo grove. And this effectively is the first time that the Buddha is acknowledged by a worldly power, in this case one of the most powerful kings of the day. And he's given a center, is what we call it now. It's like giving him Gaia House, a nice park, on the edge of a thriving city, a place where he can easily get support and funding, ma- materials and food, and also, crucially, security. He's within the rule of law that would have governed the city of Rajgaha. So this is an enormous success. I and mean, here he is, a young man from a totally different country, who's left home, abandoned everything, But he's come to some sort of vision that is sufficiently compelling to persuade and convert the greatest king of the day. And for the first two or three years at least, possibly a few years more, his main base remains Rajgir in Magadha. It appears that after, in the, in the second or the third year after his awakening, he returns back to Kapilavastu, I'm sorry if I keep switching Pali to Sanskrit. Kapilavastu, his home city or town really in Shakya. He reconciles himself with his family. This is an important moment. Um, he's forgiven having left his wife and his kid in the lurch. In fact, his father, um, who's the head of the local council or local assembly, is persuaded also of what the Buddha says. His wife, um, in it, there's a very moving scene where the wife uh, sends the little boy, his son, to the father, the Buddha. And the little boy says, um, I've come for my inheritance. <laughs> And then he breaks into tears, I think, or something like that. In other words, it must have been a very moving moment. The, the boy is, is actually, he's only about seven or eight years old, but he's taken into the community of monks with his father. Um, his stepmother, Pajapati, Mahapajapati, also becomes a follower, many of his family. In other words, they embrace this prodigal son, and um, affirm their own commitment to his new vision of things. And we also know that, probably around this time, he gets involved again in local affairs, local politics. There's a famous occasion where he resolves a dispute over water rights to the river Rohini. There were two clans or two principal families in Shakya, the Gautamas, his lot, and the Kolyas. And the Kolyas lived on the other side of the river, and in years where the monsoon was not so good or in years of drought or whatever, then, crucially, both sides needed the same water. And at one point, it got really into a conflict that could have erupted into violence, and the Buddha steps in, or according to the text, he flies in, (laughs) not by easy jet, but he levitates and hovers over the river and resolves the dispute. I think it's far more likely he probably was on a little raft or stood by the river. In any case, he resolves that dispute, and that more or less becomes the moment where he is completely accepted again into his community. And it's at that moment also that, the, um, uh, that many Shakyan men and women ask to become part of the community. It's the first time that women approach him to be members of the community. At that time he actually refuses, but within a few months he changes his mind. I'm not going into this story. It's a beautiful story, but I want to move on. So in other words, you can see that in these first years, he's, he's building up his base in Magadha. He's reconciled himself with his family. Um, but of course, the, the place where he's, in a sense, most drawn, and he's already been invited there, is the capital city of Kosala itself, Shravasti, or Savati in Pali. Now Shravasti is the capital city. It's ruled by a man called uh, Pasenadi, King Pasenadi of Kosala. Shortly after the awakening, while still in Magadha, the Buddha is invited to come to Shravasti by the banker Sudatta, sometimes called Anattapindika, a wealthy um, businessman um, renowned for his generosity. And Anattapindika or Siddhartha says, you must come to Shravasti, this is your home base. And as we speculated somewhat earlier on in this course, um, it's very likely that as a young man that would have been where Siddhartha would have formed his crucial friendships would have been sponsored or had a benefactor at the court, might even have accompanied the young prince and other noblemen to the university in Taxila and studied there. So at some point, and it's again a little bit unclear, but probably within the first years after the awakening, he returns to the capital city. And it's here that he begins his... Um, Uh, his friendship, his relationship with the most powerful man of the day in that part of India, this king, Persenadi. Now, to give you a sense of Persenadi, I'm actually going to read something rather than uh, just um, speak off the top of my head. Um, this, is, this is what I'm writing at the moment and I, I, I don't think I can say it any more concisely than the way I've written it out. So I'll just read to you who this man was, Pasenadi, because he's the crucial figure really in the whole story and how the Buddha relates to him. At the time of his first recorded meeting with King Pasenadi of Kosala. Siddhartha Gautama would have been about 40 years old, the same age as the king. In appearance, he would have looked no different from the many other monks of the time. His head would have been shaven, with at at most a two-week growth of hair and beard. His dress would have consisted of three simple robes, hand-dyed yellow ochre or brown, either stitched together from discarded rags, or given his prominence as a teacher, patches of finer cloth donated by an admiring benefactor. His possessions would have amounted to no more than a metal or clay bowl, a needle and thread, a razor, a water strainer, and if he were unwell, some medicine. The king, on the other hand, would have awoken that morning in his sumptuous apartments in the city of Sarvati, Had he stepped out onto the upper terrace of his palace, he would have beheld, across the rooftops of the mud and wooden dwellings of his capital, the broad sweep of the Achiravati River, the busy fishing villages along its shore, and the fields and forests beyond. As the monarch of the most powerful kingdom north of the Ganges, a small army of officials and guards, attendants and concubines Cater to his every whim. "'He was a fat man, "'noted for consuming vast amounts of rice and curry, "'and a sensualist who would discuss with his vassals "'how to achieve the most refined forms of pleasure. "'He could be cruel as well. "'He was known to bind his enemies in ropes and chains, "'impale rebels and assassins on stakes.' and organize bloody sacrifices of cattle, goats, and sheep prepared by, quote, slaves, servants, and workers, spurred on by punishment and fear, wailing with tearful faces. He would go to any lengths to ensure his power was not challenged, even infiltrating the religious communities around Sarvati with his spies, who disguised themselves as monks, All of this is in the canon. I've just put it all together. Below the king's quarters in the courtyard of the palace, decorated elephants headed by Ekapundaraki, the king's favorite mount, will be waiting to carry the royal party from the bustling city to the monastic retreat of Jetta's Grove a mile away. Sumana, Persenade's younger sister, who cared for their elderly grandmother, of whom the king was very fond, was one of the group. Given the official nature of the occasion, it's likely that Bandula, the king's close friend and commander of the army, together with his devout wife Malika, were also present among the retinue. The procession would have left around mid-morning, bearing gifts and ample food to offer the community at Jetta's Grove for their sole meal, at midday. Once the formalities of the meal were over, King Posenadi and his retinue would have made their way to the Gandakuti, the scented hut, where Siddhartha lived and received guests. The king considered himself to be an intellectual and a patron of learning. As a young man, together with Bandula, he had studied at the University of Taxila, the capital of the Persian satrapy of Gandhara, where men from all over the ancient world traveled to train in the various arts and sciences of the day. On becoming king, Persenadi made a point of visiting the itinerant teachers who came to Sarvati in order to question them about their doctrines and attainments, ask their advice, and, if pleased, offer them his protection and support. Now it was Siddhartha's turn the two men exchange greetings, chat cordially for a while, then the king sits down and comes straight to the point. So, Master Gautama, how can you, who are still so young and have only recently left home, possibly say that you are an awakened one? Siddhartha, I imagine, would have looked the pompous monarch in the eye A faint, ironic smile darting across his face. (laughs) There are four things, Your Majesty, that should not be disparaged on account of their youth. A fire, a snake, a warrior, and a monk. If a tiny flame gains a stock of fuel, it becomes a conflagration. A little snake chanced upon in a village or forest may attack and kill the person who does not heed it. A warrior prince might likewise one day seize your throne and thrash you. And if you tamper with a virtuous monk, you will risk remaining childless and heirless, like the stump of a palmyra tree. Sparks of fire, small vipers and princes are dangerous. At first glance, they may not seem threatening, but under the right circumstances, they can wreak enormous damage and destruction. By identifying himself, a monk, with these forces, Siddhartha implies that he and his teaching might also be a threat to the established order of things. He plays on the king's fears and superstitions. Like every monarch of the time, Passenadi knows that other members of his family, his brother Jetta for example, are most certainly vying for his throne behind his back. Moreover, since the king has yet to produce an heir, his own lineage is far from secure. Siddhartha does not beat around the bush he impresses his authority on the king and the gambit plays off. Instead of flying into a rage, Pasenadi is favorably struck by Siddhartha's reply and asks to be accepted as a follower. Now, unlike a Bimbisara, Pasenadi never becomes a stream entrant. This is a, if not the, key moment in Siddhartha Gautama's career. After five or more years of teaching and building up a following across North India, today the supreme ruler of Kursala, the man to whom Siddhartha has owed fealty his entire adult life, has finally deigned to come and see him. In securing the loyalty of Pasenadi, Siddhartha has gained the support of his king. His tenure in Savati is now assured. This, this is where he will spend every rainy season for the next 25 years, where he will develop, deliver the majority of his discourses, where he will work out the details of his monastic rule and order. Pacenody becomes a regular visitor at Jetta's Grove. Over time, the monk and the tyrant become friends, and eventually, through marriage, Relatives. Poseni's devotion to Siddhartha Gautama and and his teaching does not, however, work a miraculous transformation on the royal ego. Among all the many dialogues between the two, the king is not once recorded as achieving any insight. (laughs) The only time he is seen to benefit from Siddhartha's instruction is when he follows his advice to go on a diet. (laughs) From, quote, a bucket measure of rice and curries, he reduces his intake to, at most, a pint-pot measure of boiled rice and, as a result, becomes quite slim. (laughs) In all other respects, Persenides' appetites and paranoid fears seem little affected by anything Siddhartha tells him. I was sitting in the law court, says Persenadi to Siddhartha one day, and what did I see? All these affluent judges telling lies in order to further enrich themselves. Then I thought, I've had enough of this. From now on, Hansom's in charge. I'll be able to trust his judgment. Handsome was the nickname by which Bundler. Persenides, friend and commander of his army was affectionately known. Yet no sooner had Bundela been appointed chief justice than the, than the disgraced judges began circulating a rumor that the general and his sons were planning to assassinate Persenadi and seize the throne. The king appears to have panicked. He dispatched Bundela and his sons to quell an uprising on the northern border. Then, on their return to Sarvati, had them ambushed and killed. When Malika, Bundala's wife, heard this news, she was in the midst of preparing a midday meal for Siddhartha and his monks. She kept calm and instructed her daughters-in-law to voice no criticism of Persenadi, who she correctly surmised, would soon be overcome with remorse at having murdered his oldest friend and ally. Persenade spared the lives of the women and provided them with safe conduct, conduct back to Bandala's estates at Kusinara. And as an additional act of atonement, the king appointed Digakarayana, Bandala's nephew, to replace him, Bandala, as head of the army, a move he would later bitterly regret. Siddhartha's reaction to this brutal murder, committed by his foremost patron, is not recorded. Since he could not have afforded to jeopardize his standing in Savati, it is unlikely that he would have openly criticized the king for his behavior Bandala's death would have been a warning to him. For no matter how high one might be held in Persenade's esteem one day, if the tyrant's mood suddenly shifted, the next day one could be dead. We can assume that Siddhartha knew Bandala well. They were eldest sons of the governors of neighboring provinces in eastern Kursala. Siddhata in Shakya and Bandula in Mala. And both men had risen to prominence at Savati under the patronage of the king. Thirty or so years later, Siddhartha will lay down to die between two sal trees outside the Malan town of Kusinara. And Malika, Bandula's frail old widow, will unfurl her most precious jeweled cloak over his corpse. Now th- this episode, which I suspect most of you have probably not ever heard about before, um, is in fact a an cru- extremely crucial moment in the whole dynamic of events that then unravels over the rest of the Buddha's life. And um, the, perhaps the, the moment where this becomes uh, consolidated, by this I mean Siddhartha's relationship with persenity becomes consolidated, is when persenity requires a new wife. Now, as that passage already mentioned, Um, Persenedi at the time of this first meeting did not yet have an heir and this of course was crucial if his own line and his own circle were to remain in power so he marries a woman called Malika confusingly because it's the same name as Bundler's wife the Malika the king marries though is not of the royal court. She's, what, she, 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 she's the daughter, the young daughter, of a um, garland maker. And the story is that one day Persenedi was driving through the streets of the city in his carriage and he heard this beautiful voice coming from behind a wall. And so he stops the chariot, goes into the compound, and there he sees this beautiful young woman singing this song. But a garland maker, of course, is a very low caste in India. And the king, so besotted is he with this young woman, decides to ignore all of that and takes her straight back to the palace as his wife. Now, this, of course, would have caused considerable upset at the court. It also is problematic because Malika fa- fails to bear the king a son. Um, she only gives him a daughter. And there's a, again, there's a passage in, in the Sanyuta Nikaya where the king comes to the buddha and he's talking to the buddha about some business or other and then a messenger comes in and whispers in the king's ear and the king bursts out into a rage and the buddha says you know what's the matter and he says it's a daughter and then the buddha says a sort of proto-feminist response <laughs> he says but but a daughter can become very virtuous a daughter can be very wise A daughter can produce a very healthy son. What's the problem? The king storms out. And Malika, after that birth, never conceives again. It's at this point that the king realizes that um, if he's going to produce a son, he'll need another wife. And what better place to have a wife from... Than Shakya, this rather um, uh, proud tribe of or clan that lives in the east of the country that has produced this wonderful person called Siddhartha Gautama the Buddha. That's what I'll do, he says. I'll marry someone from his family, you know, a nice, you know country girl. So he sets in motion, um, you know, what needs to be done to get a nice country girl. And the person he approaches is, understandably, the, the top man in shakya, who at this time is um, this man Mahanama. Now, who was Mahanama? Mahanama was a cousin of the Buddha, On his father's side, Mahanama was the brother of Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant, and also the brother of another monk called Anuruddha, who some of you might have heard of. Both Ananda and Anuruddha are very, very close to the Buddha, and they are in fact the only ones we know for sure to have been with him when he died. So Mahanama, as their brother, as the Buddha's first cousin, was clearly very close to the immediate family of the Buddha himself. After Siddhartha's father, um, Sudodana had died, then the leadership of Shakya passed to Mahanama. Mahanama, in other words, took over the job of being what we might call governor of the province head of the local assembly the top man so Pasenadi approaches Mahanama and says I need a wife and um, I'd like one of your daughters please (laughs) and Mahanama says okay no problem (laughs) and so he hands over a daughter a daughter who is called uh, Katya, which means literally Lady Vasabha, Lady Vasabha, and so we can imagine the great day when Mahanama, the Buddha's cousin, important man, governor of the province, arrives in Savatthi, probably in some on top of some fancily painted elephant. Uh, his daughter veiled, uh, in they ride, big wedding. Um, lots of celebration, and here it's at this point that the Buddha becomes a relative of the king. In other words, the Buddha's family marries into the royal court. So not only is Siddhartha now the the, the most prominent uh, teacher, philosopher, religious guide in the city in effectively the whole of Korsala, he's also now married into the royal family. This is an extraordinary achievement. But there's a snag. <clears throat> because, you see, the Shakyans were very proud people. This is a refrain that, that comes again and again and again through the um, texts. And the women of Shakya refused, point blank, that any noble woman of their family would be married to that man in Shravasti. No way. We're not going to corrupt the purity of our lineage by having um, one of our people married to that, and they probably didn't respect him very much, that tyrant. So how does Mahanama get around this problem? He can hardly say no, but on the other hand he can't say yes. So he does nonetheless give the king a daughter of his in marriage, Vassabha, but Vasaba is his offspring from a slave who worked in his kitchen called Nagamunda. <laughs> now this, of course... Um, is somewhat of a dangerous move to make. But especially when you're dealing with somebody like Persenadi, who has no hesitation to murder people if he suspects them. So the, the Shakyans, in other words, become involved in a major deception. As far as the king knows, as Persenadi knows, this wife is a Shakyan noblewoman. But as far as Ananda and Anuruddha and Mahapajapati and all of the the family who are part of the Buddha's community in Jetta's Grove know, it's not a noble, she's not a noble woman. Now there's no way the Buddha could not have known that. leaving aside the fact that he might have been omniscient, this was close family business. And yet nobody spills the proverbial beans, the proverbial dal. <laughs> and um, you can imagine now that you've got a, a highly um, highly dangerous and volatile and unpredictable situation here in Sarvati. If the king were to find out, or if someone at the court were to find out and tell the king that these shakyans are basically pulling the wool over his eyes, it's unlikely that he would be too pleased. That a king is now married to a slave, effectively. But, luckily, Lady Vasaba produces a son. And that seems to solve the problem, at least in the short term. The son is called Vidudaba or Virudaka. We'll call him Vidudaba. So now the king has an heir. So on the surface, everything now looks great. The Shakyans are in a wonderful position of proximity and power at the court. The Buddha is supported by this most powerful king, married to his cousin, who's produced now a son. His line is assured. And this situation continues quite happily for a number of years until Vidudaba reaches probably around the age of 16 or 17 and his father, Pasenadi the king, arranges for him to have a tour through his lands and so off they go, and inevitably the young prince, the king-to-be, is taken to his maternal home of Shakya. And again, the Shakians here are clearly going to have to be very careful that nothing leaks out. And it all goes fine. They have a nice time. It's not recorded exactly what they do, but one imagines there was lots of feasting and possibly a bit of hunting and the sort of things that aristocrats enjoyed doing. And then just before the royal party is to leave Shakya, Vidudaba, the prince, goes one more time into the assembly hall at Shakya. This is the place I describe which has the thatched roof and the pillars and where the business of the community is discussed amongst the elders of the, <clears throat> of, of the different families. But when Vidudabu goes inside uh, this assembly hall, he notices that there is a woman who's cleaning the um, seats, and particularly the seat on which he, the prince, had sat, with milk. And he makes inquiries, and it turns out that the reason she's doing that is to eradicate the stains of a slave's son, having set having sat in the assembly hall. Now when Virudaka Virudaba, <coughs> discovers this, he flies into a rage and he says, I vow that at one day I will wash the seats of this assembly hall with the blood of the Shakyan women. And then they leave. Now, at this point, obviously, the game is up. And what is... Uh, again, you see, there's very little... You only get fragments of this story. There's no um, record in the canon itself or even in the commentaries of exactly what the Buddha's reaction was to this or what happened immediately. The only thing we know is that Pasenadi initially... Um, was so furious that he arrested Vasaba, his queen and the son, Vidudaba and he shaved their heads and he dressed them in sackcloth and paraded them around the city but it seems as though the Buddha or someone within the community persuaded him you know, not to punish them any further for this since it was hardly their fault but what we do learn from the canonical record is from, from that point on the Buddha spends no more rains retreats at Sarvati at Shravasti in other words the Buddha's credibility at this point is lost he, he, he no longer has the support or the, the, yeah, the, the support or the backing of the court understandably since he clearly was if not an active um, player in this deception he clearly knew about it and the shakyans it seems at that point were banished from sarvati and the remaining years um, of the Buddha's life the last five or six years are basically spent on the road. There's no record of his going back to Savati. One of the most telling uh, clues we get in the, in, in the canon itself is that after the Buddha's death, um, his ashes are collected in a jar. And shortly afterwards, envoys from the different kingdoms and countries near roundabout Um, request that they can have a share of the ashes and the bones and the relics so that they can enshrine them in their own countries. And this is agreed upon. But what's curious is of the eight places that are listed, we do not find uh, 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 Savati, Shravasti, the place where the Buddha spent the most of his life teaching. They didn't request a stupa, sorry, a relics to put in a stupa. And when you go to Shravasti today and you look at the archaeological evidence, there is no ancient stupa at Shravasti. You'll find them everywhere else, but not Shravasti. So we're going to stop here, but leaving the Buddha um, in a kind of disgrace, one would imagine, without a base a real major base, as he had in Jetta's Grove. And it's a, we, we can actually follow quite clearly and quite accurately um, the movements that he makes in the last months and years of his life. And that's the story that I will um, complete uh, the day after tomorrow. <laughs> but, the, <laughs> but the reason that... Um, I think uh, these these stories have relevance is because they um, locate what the Buddha's teaching in a very vivid and in a very conflicted social and political environment. And what's remarkable is the level of detail that you can reconstruct. The problem is that all of these little incidents that I've been telling you are not organized chronologically in the canon, at all. They're they're scattered all over it like buckshot. Little bit here, little bit there. Often totally decontextualized. But if you take each little bit out and you line it all up, it's a bit like a jigsaw puzzle. Each bit of the puzzle in itself doesn't mean much. It's only when they're all put together does the larger picture begin to emerge? And I think we basically have to be grateful to the literal mindedness of those monks who memorized the early teachings. Because they remembered all this stuff, even though it was actually not of, of any intrinsic um, relevance to the teaching of the Dhamma. But it's there. It's kind of acts as a sort of Backdrop, stage decor, At the opening of a sutta, it'll often say, and the Buddha was staying in X, and then he was greeted by Y, and then he turned to Z, and you don't know who these people are. You don't know where these places are, and you usually just you know, ignore it and get on to the, you know, to the meat, the Dhamma, the teaching, meditation, truth, non-self. And forget about all this other stuff. But once you turn your interest to the other stuff, instead of it being just a random set of arbitrary details, it's actually a highly coherent story, which enables you to reconstruct it at the level of detail that I have just read out. And so this, for me, gives the Buddha's teaching um, uh, a much um, more uh, vivid uh, context and setting, that the Buddha was living in troubled times, in a period in which the status quo was about to violently erupt. It was a, it was a period of tension, of war, of violence, of uncertainty. India as it were, beginning to consolidate into what, about a hundred years later, will be the Mauryan Empire. And so the Buddha lives at this very crucial moment in the development of Indian identity. And he's witness, it appears, to many of the um, conflicts and political maneuverings that resulted in actually what we will call the creation of India, as as we know that concept today. So tomorrow I'm going to, at last, get round to the idea of self, non-self, karma, and other topics that keep raising their head and being batted down again. (laughs) Thank you.